0: A ghost note is not, in fact, a drum note that has died and come back to haunt the living. It's just a quieter note played in between louder hits. Funk drummers make great use of ghost notes, proving once again that funk is definitely the spookiest style of music. Welcome to Strong Songs, a podcast about music. I'm your host, Kirk Hamilton, and I'm so glad that you've joined me to talk about music with ghost notes, music with zombie notes, and sometimes music with lich, rape, and even revenant notes. This is an independent, fully listener-supported podcast. Thanks to each and every one of you who's become a patron or made a PayPal donation, you keep this whole thing going. If you want to support the show and get access to bonus episodes, go to patreon.com slash strong songs to find out more. On this episode, it's time for Strong Grooves, Volume 1, a look at three classic rhythm section grooves that defined and continue to define funk music. I really just have one question for you, and that's, well, can we give the drummer some? Because I think we probably should. The course of the four years that i've been making strong songs i've tried to reinforce the idea that music is a continuum every great song recording and performance is just a point along an endless line of artistic and cultural influence thanks to the relative permanence of recorded audio the drum part that you hear on a new hit record today could have originated with the drummer 50 years ago and in this modern age of sampling it could literally be that drum part from 50 years ago Every musician performing today acts as a sort of prism, reflecting through the sounds and styles of musicians they came up studying, listening to, and transcribing. And those musicians that they listened to and transcribed, they were no different. All of modern music is this night sky of connected constellations, with music pumping through the spaces between each point, ever-changing, growing, and doubling back. 20th century American music, the kind of music that I'm most familiar with and mostly focus on on this show, that's its own whole thing, a complex and interwoven tapestry of musical styles from all around the world that at this point has transcended continental boundaries and gone global. But in the 1950s, 60s, and 70s, American musicians, and in particular black American musicians, were breaking down so many musical barriers defining so many sounds and styles that are still so popular today. Jazz, rock, soul, blues, funk, those styles all got their start or came into their own during that handful of decades. But while I've talked about a lot of those first few styles on Strong Songs, I haven't talked nearly enough about funk. So today, I'm going to begin to remedy that with a look inside the groovy workings of three famous, influential funk recordings from the late 60s and early 70s. I don't
1: care.
0: We're going to start in the year 1967, and I mean, you're already hearing the first artist we're going to talk about, because if you're going to do an episode of your music podcast about funk, you got to start with James Brown. That's just what we're gonna do! We're gonna start by going deep inside the groove on James Brown's 1967 tune Cold Sweat, with a focus on legendary drummer Clyde Stubblefield's use of the then groundbreaking Fatback drum groove. After that, we're gonna hop forward a couple years to 1969 and head down south to New Orleans for another widely imitated, never duplicated funk classic. The meter's Sissy Strut is a famous drum groove and one of my favorite parts to play along with. It's just an inimitable recording, and it's defined by how drummer Zigaboo Modeliste mixes his own New Orleans influences into this totally distinct thing that mixes street beats, second line, and funk. And last, we're going to hop a few more years forward to 1972... And head into the studio with two artists I've previously covered on the show, drummer Bernard Purdy, the man so groovy he's got a shuffle named after him, and the Queen of Soul herself, Aretha Franklin. Bernard Purdy represented the vanguard of a more technical and complex type of funk drumming, and his work on Aretha's classic song Rocksteady set the stage for the next two decades of innovation in funk drumming, really more than the next two decades. It's just one of those one-of-a-kind, lightning-in-a-bottle grooves, and it also features one of the greatest drum breakaways of all time. Bernard Purdy. So that's what we're gonna talk about in this episode. Those three songs with a special focus on the drum grooves that drove each one and the ways that those drum parts interacted with the rest of the band to create a pulse, a heartbeat that still beats today. So this is gonna be a very drum focused episode and here's the thing. All right, I play a lot of instruments. If you've listened to the show, you know that I play a lot of musical instruments. I even play some of those instruments pretty well. But while I do play drums, I don't play drums that well. I'd never describe myself as a drummer and I don't have the kind of deep knowledge of the instrument that would let me really get inside the particulars of these legendary drum parts. I just don't think that I'm worthy really on some level. Fortunately, Well, I may not be a good drummer, but I know a good drummer. My name is Russ Kleiner. I'm a drummer, went to school with Kirk in the University of Miami. Russ Kleiner, my old friend, sounds like a nice guy, right? And he is a very nice guy, but he's also a bad mother on the drums. He's played with a billion different bands all over the place over the years, including a bunch of bands that he and I played in together back when we were in music school. He knows a ton about the drums, and he provided all the drumming that you're going to hear on this episode. He'd be the first to demur and tell you that he's still got a lot left to learn, he's no expert, but he's certainly better versed in this stuff than I am. So Russ is going to be our guide to the drum parts on these three funk tunes. He'll explain what Clyde Stubblefield, Zigaboo Motiliste, and Bernard Purdy are doing on each song, and then I'll flesh out the rest of the band on my own, which will really give us a sense of how each song was built on that funky drum foundation. First up we go to the late 60s as James Brown and his band were in the process of changing funk music and just music in general forever. Of the many classic James Brown tunes of this era that I could have focused on, Sex Machine, Papa's Got a Brand New Bag, Mother Popcorn, I Got the Feeling, Cold Sweat was an originator of several now ubiquitous musical elements that would turn up again and again in future songs. A long single-figure vamp, a fatback drum groove, and it was also the first song where James Brown asked if he could give the drummer some. So I mean, what, was I not going to talk about this on the drum-focused funk episode of Strong Songs? Cold Sweat was written by James Brown and his band leader, saxophonist Alfred Pee-wee Ellis. It featured many of the musicians who were a part of his 60s band, the tail end of the era when James Brown's band was called the Famous Flames. It was a band full of amazing and influential players, including a big horn section that had Wayman Reed on trumpet, Pee Wee Ellis on alto sax, and funk legend Maceo Parker on tenor sax. Maceo is one of my favorite sax players ever, probably my favorite funk saxophone player. Maceo is super great. If you've never listened to his music, he has a bunch of music under his own name. And James Brown actually calls him out by name before his solo on Cold Sweat. Maceo! The band also featured Bernard Odom on bass, Jimmy Nolan on guitar, and Clyde Stubblefield on drums. There were other players than those three, but I'm gonna talk about those three players quite a bit, so I wanted to mention their names up top before we get into things. I do want to mention, though, that we're gonna be talking a lot about Clyde Stubblefield's drumming, which is fitting since he had a huge impact on drumming and music in general, but I do want to mention three other drummers, Jabo Starks, Clayton Filiao, and Melvin Parker. Melvin Parker was actually Maceo Parker's brother. Those three drummers also played on a bunch of classic James Brown tunes, and they were equally important for the development of funk drumming vocabulary. None of those musicians gets his due as often as each of them probably should, so I just wanted to mention them because modern music owes a huge debt to all four of them. So Cold Sweat, if you listen to this tune now, it might not sound that remarkable to you. Like it's remarkably funky, it sounds like a James Brown tune, but it's kind of quintessentially James Brown to the point where if you've listened to a lot of James Brown, it just kind of sounds like another really funky James Brown song. So a lot of those musical elements would go on to become staples of James Brown's repertoire and of funk music in general, but it was pretty cutting edge at the time. It's just important to place it in context because I think nowadays you listen to James Brown and it's easy to just think of it as all just one big glob, but it was released in a kind of chronology and it developed, the styles developed and the style of his band and his music changed over the period of time that he was making music, particularly through the late 60s and into the early 70s. So before Cold Sweat, James Brown's songs often relied on a 12-bar blues song form. That's a song form with at least three chords spread out over a set 12-bar order, and every blues pretty much follows some version of that order. I've talked about the blues before on the show, but just as a refresher for anyone who maybe doesn't remember, let's take Papa's Got a Brand New Bag, which was a hit for Brown two years earlier in 1965. That song is a 12-bar blues. It follows that familiar 12-bar song form. It moves from one to the four back to the one and then it does a turnaround from five to four to one even if you don't know what that means when I say those numbers you definitely know what the blues sounds like and you've probably heard so many blues over the course of your life listening to music that you instinctively know how to anticipate what it's gonna sound like let me show you so here we're on the one chord and we go to the four And then back to the 1, then we go 5, to 4, to 1, turn it around! Another chorus, another 12 bars, another time through those same chords. Now there are a ton of chords in a song like that. It's not exactly prog rock or Joy Spring or something, but there is a sense of chordal motion. Like I said, even if you weren't aware of what it was called, you know what the blues is, right? I mean that sounded familiar. Whenever you hear a song like Johnny B Good or Prince's Kiss or the old Batman theme or Grease Lightning or Hound Dog or Folsom Prison Blues, any of literally thousands of other famous songs, you're hearing a blues chord progression, and you come to expect how the chords are going to change and where it's going to go. So what made cold what groundbreaking at the time was the fact that until the bridge, that song doesn't change chords at all. It's just one chord, a D7 chord, and they just sit on it.
1: About your past. I just want.
0: It's a really different energy. They've got nowhere to be. They're just here on this one chord in the groove. I don't care, In fact, there's really only one other chord in the song. On the bridge, it goes down a whole step to C7. Here it comes. So that is pretty cool, a funk vamp where a band just grooves on a single chord for an extended period of time, that's such a staple of the style now that at this point it feels strange to imagine a time before funk vamps were commonplace but Cold Sweat was actually breaking new ground in that respect. Case in point, the other two songs I'm going to be talking about, both largely single chord funk vamps. Now you know how I'm always talking about how music is a big tapestry of ideas and how innovations in one style might bleed over to another. It's no surprise that funk and jazz musicians were all listening to one another through the 50s and the 60s. They were borrowing ideas from one another, making them their own, growing new branches on the musical tree. And I'm guessing that longtime listeners of Strong Songs are hearing me talk about a song sitting on a single chord for a long time and then slightly changing it for the bridge. And they're hearing that horn part. And they're thinking, you know, this all sounds familiar. Yes, as it happens, Pee-wee Ellis has cited Miles Davis's So What, a previous strong song, which you should definitely go listen to if you haven't, as an influence on the conception of cold sweat. And even if he hadn't said that without knowing that it really was an influence on him, I mean, you can see the similarities between the two songs, right? They're even in the same key. Just one more little connection that i hope you enjoy as much as i do it really is all connected okay so harmonic conception experimental form that's all exciting that's fine that's well and good but first and foremost this tune moves this tune makes you move when you listen to it and there's some really cool stuff going on there as well some cool technical stuff so let's break the song down to its basics starting with the drums So on Cold Sweat, Clyde Stubblefield was one of the first drummers to popularize the fatback feel. Now some of you may be like me, you heard that term and you kind of get the gist, but you don't know precisely what it means. That's what we've got Russ Kleiner here for, so I asked Russ if he could explain it.
2: Cold Sweat was one of the first examples of what would come to be known as fatback drumming. Fatback drummers sometimes avoid the one, maybe on the second part of a phrase. Occasionally you'll hear more complex hi-hat patterns opening up. You have a a variation of dynamics achieved through snare accents and ghosted snare notes. And always, you're hearing an unyielding groove.
0: So Russ just threw a bunch of drumming terminology out there, and the more he demonstrated and explained these drum techniques to me, the more I came to appreciate just how much intricacy and subtlety went into everything that Clyde Stubblefield was doing. That's something that I understand in a broad sense, like I get that that's true of every instrument of every instrumental performance, if you asked me to explain what Stan Getz or Ben Webster was doing on a given tenor sax solo, I could spend five minutes just talking about the relationship between embouchure and subtone. so I get it, but it was really cool to hear master drummer explain it on his instrument now while he was explaining it he did get technical but he repeatedly emphasized to me that fatback is a broad kind of shorthand term it's an incomplete term really and it just is kind of a word that floated up over the years to describe something that really evolved pretty organically. There isn't any one thing that does or doesn't make a guru fatback. No one sat down and wrote this out and said, and we will call it fatback. The whole system was born from improvisational jams where James Brown would kind of holler and sing at the band, he'd indicate which notes he wanted emphasized, he'd tell them when they were doing something that he liked. The whole thing grew from a sort of group improvisational process. So don't take any of this to be overly didactic or prescriptive, I know a lot of people really want things to be clearly categorized and broken up with rules, but that's just not how music works most of the time, and in this case, I really just want to give you a sense of the broad meaning of fatback and what it sounds like, without getting too bogged down in specific techniques, or does it need to have this, does it need to have that. So I do want to demonstrate some of those things that Russ was talking about, before we get into that though I just want to give some quick terminology for any newcomers, or folks who aren't familiar with the drums. So here on Strong Songs, I talk a lot about thump, pop, and sizzle. Those are the three elements of most popular grooves. Those are also three words that are written on a t-shirt that you can buy in the Strong Songs store. But more importantly, they're the three fundamental elements of most popular grooves, and they're commonly represented by the three most used elements of a drum set. The thumping kick drum, or the bass drum, you hit that with your right foot. The pop of the snare drum bouncing off of the kick, and the sizzle of the hi-hat, the two cymbals that you control with your left foot that generally sit right next to the snare drum. So your average funk groove combines those three elements to create a fundamental thump, pop, and sizzle groove that drives millions of songs. So the first and most noticeable thing that a fatback drum groove does is it displaces the second pop in that standard groove, the second snare drum hit. So in a straightforward groove, like the one I was just playing, the snare hits on two and four. One, two, three, four, just steady on two and four. In a fatback groove, that second hit is pushed onto the upbeat, what's called the and of four, which kind of just makes it here it takes what could be an awkward trip or stutter and then does it over and over again, turning it into an essential part of the groove. One, two, three, and one, two, three, four. You hear it? Just really focus on that snare drum. I don't
1: care! And one, two.
0: I asked Russ to describe how that displaced snare drum makes him feel. He gave a very technical answer. It makes my body go like like, popcorn. I feel like
2: doom. Right. It's like a little
0: little shot to the system (laughs) it does kind of yeah it makes your shoulders kind of move it it moves your body it has a sort of physical effect yes
2: it very much has a physical effect and you're waiting to ground it also in that second part of the phrase so as soon as you have that up naturally the listener or the player is inclined to want to ground it with whatever comes next
0: I love that description that the groove trips and throws you up into the air, and then as a listener, you're subject to gravity, and that makes you want to pull back down to earth. And that's where the second half of the phrase comes in, and we'll get into that in just a little bit. Now there's more to Fatback than just a displaced snare hit, dynamics play a crucial role in the groove as well. Any yahoo can hit a drum really loud, most people can practice a bit and start to hit a drum really loud and more or less in time, but it takes years to master the art of playing drums with variable dynamics, and on drums as on most instruments, dynamics are just as essential to groove as time. You may have seen drummers talking about ghost notes. They're kind of one of those terms that gets bandied about a lot. And they're a nebulous, difficult to master technique that can turn a good groove into a legendary one. I asked Russ if he could explain.
2: The ghosted notes.
0: Ghosted meaning that
2: they're played very soft. Ghosted almost to the point where you often on recordings or live can't hear them. It's more of a thing that you feel, you know when they're not there because the groove sounds and feels much different. So a snare hit, an accent might be here. A ghost note might be here. And there's also everything in between. You can work up to it. All the different levels of dynamic that give the beat a a really different kind of contour. Here's the Cold Sweat beat. Instead of playing all of the ghosted notes, I'll play them all at regular volume. That's very in your face, not musical. It's not necessarily a phrase or telling a story. Here's that same beat with the ghosted notes, some more dynamics. Yeah, the hi hat it. So the dynamics, ghost notes really do make a huge, huge difference. And you'll find them in every single fat, fat beat that you hear.
0: So I hope you're starting to get a sense of the subtle musicianship at work in some of these classic recordings. People talk a lot about pocket or feel, these kind of vague terms, but there are specific techniques behind those terms. And sometimes those techniques are so subtle that you can't even really hear them. You can just kind of tell when they're not there. Russ and I recorded way more than I could fit into this episode for all three of these songs, but among other things, we went through a really cool chronology of how Clyde Stubblefield's grooves evolved from 1967 through to 1970. So 1967 was Cold Sweat, and then he recorded one iconic drum groove every year after that. In 1968, he recorded I Got the Feeling. in 1969, Mother Popcorn, and then there was his humongously sampled drum break on 1970's Funky Drummer. Each of those grooves is every bit as iconic as Cold Sweat, and Russ had a lot to say about each of them. I didn't have space for all of that in this episode, but I didn't want to let it go to waste, so I made it into a bonus mini-sode about the evolution of James Brown drumming, and I dropped that over in the Patreon bonus feed. So if you're a patron of the show, you can head over there after you listen to this episode and you can learn more about how James Brown and Clyde Stubblefield's grooves evolved over this period of time. One last observation Russ made actually ties in with the rest of the ensemble, and that's to do with phrasing. We were talking about Mother Popcorn, another Clyde Subblefield fatback groove that kind of evolved out of Cold Sweat. And Russ started talking about phrasing and how a fatback groove like this one, it isn't just a one-bar drum groove that he loops over and over again. It's really a two-bar phrase. Russ describes it as like a question and an answer.
2: Personally, I also hear... And think of Fatback as very much a musical phrase with like a question and an answer where you have a two-bar groove. First part of the groove is the question. Second part of the groove grounds it, answers it. So the question might be... And the answer... Question... Answer... have a lot of those longer two-bar phrases it's extremely musical which almost always goes along with some wonderful bass parts guitar rhythm parts etc
0: So yeah, as Russ says, there's a lot more to an iconic funk groove than just the drum part, important though that part may be. There's the rest of the band, there's how they fit in with the drums to make a full groove. I had a really good time trying to recreate the sound and feel of each of these recordings by playing bass, guitar, keys, and horns along with the drum parts that Russ recorded. I'm nowhere near as good at any of those instruments as he is at drums, but with him at the bottom, I think I got close enough to give you a sense of how each one of these grooves fits together. So first of all, on Cold Sweat, there's Bernard Odom. The bass and the drums are always going to have a special relationship, and that's certainly true here. That's true on all of the songs that I'm going to talk about on this episode, but that's definitely true on Cold Sweat. So Odom's bass line follows that two-part question-and-answer phrasing approach that's also happening in the drums. He plays something like this. So he starts up high, then for the second half, he drops down. So there's the question, and then there's the answer. Put them together and add the drums, and you can really get a sense of that repeating question and answer two bar phrase. So I just want to note here that all of the bass players that I'll talk about on this episode are playing a Fender Precision Bass or a P-Bass. P-Bass is basically the sound of soul and funk music in the 60s and 70s. And I don't have a P-Bass. I have a jazz bass, which is a great bass and a really versatile one. Um, also made by Fender, it's kind of the jelly to the P-Bass's peanut butter. I think that's kind of how I would describe it. And it works. The P-Bass is peanut butter and the J-Bass is jelly. Anyways, I only have a jazz bass and I'm also not much of a bassist, so I did my best. It was still instructive to try to get this groove down especially the the subtleties the short note before that drop it's similar to the drum part where you can learn the notes and you can play them technically in time but there's a big gulf between that and playing it the way that Bernard Odom plays it. So that's the bass. Now let's talk about that guitar part played by Jimmy Nolan, the king of the chicken scratch. I just wanna... There are actually two guitar parts on Cold Sweat. One is being played by Country Kellum. He's playing what I think is a Stratocaster, just this repeating figure consisting of three notes. He plays some chords on the bridge, but it's just three single notes on the verse. You can hear them underneath me talking. Jimmy Nolan, however, he's not even playing notes. Nolan became famous for the chicken scratch technique, a guitar style that he popularized with James Brown. Basically, you just mute the strings and you scrape the pick across them very rhythmically, and the sound that comes out is just scratchy string rhythms. So as you can hear, Nolan's really more of a drummer here than a guitarist, even though he's using a guitar to make the sound. And if you remember what Russ was saying about snare ghost notes, Nolan is working in much the same way with his accented downstrokes and then lighter up and downstrokes working kind of like ghost notes on the snare drum. Listen to it with Russ's drums and you'll hear what I'm talking about. It was harder to play that guitar part than you would probably think. It has to be so precise and so mercilessly rhythmic. James Brown was infamous as a very hard band leader and kind of a hard guy all around. You can hear that relentlessness, that sort of loose rigidity reflected in all of his music and played by all of his bands. It probably wasn't always fun exactly to be in James Brown's band, but she definitely got really tight with the musicians that she were on stage with. That just leaves the horns the section nearest and dearest to my heart. There's not a ton to say about the horn part itself. It's not particularly complicated, just a sort of funkier riff on that horn figure from Miles Davis's So What. It's a great horn part though, and these horns are just nails. I mean, every single time they play that figure, they play it right, and when I was recreating it, I mean, I just played like eight bars and some fatigue starts to set in when you repeat the same figure over and over and over again. These guys have chops. I mean, it's not actually easy to to play so precisely over and over and over again, even if the notes that you're playing are the same notes every time. So I don't play trumpet or trombone, I did my best to recreate this sound with the horns that I do play, alto and tenor sax up top for Wee and Maceo, and that St. Clair Picney down on the bottom on the Barry sax, and here we go again, I still don't have a berry sax, but I do have a recently acquired bass clarinet, and yeah, the bass clarinet is nowhere near as punchy or as funky as a berry sax. But I think it'll do. So here's my full recreation of the groove from Cold Sweat, and I want you to keep your ears open for everything that we have talked about. Listen to Russ's drumming, how he's using dynamics, shifting the hi-hat, adding ghostness on the snare, displacing snare hits to make every two bars into a little conversation. Listen to that bass part, how it bounces downward halfway through the phrase. Take in that chicken scratching on the guitar, catch how it mixes with the ghost note snare patterns, and of course on top, those relentless horns smacking each repeating, Figure, like it was the only chance that they'd have to play it. Years on, here we go. I don't care your it is impossible to overstate the impact that musicians like James Brown, Pee Wee Ellis, Maceo Parker, Bernard Odom, Jimmy Nolan, Clyde Stubblefield, and every other player on this record on American music you could write a dissertation just on this one recording and you'd have to cut thousands of words for space but of course James Brown's band wasn't the only act in town right around this same time down in New Orleans a different group of players were putting their own local spin on things and that brings us to our second classic funk groove Sissy Strut" by the meters uh, yeah. Sissy Strut is one of the most famous grooves going. Ask any student drummer or guitarist, they've probably already learned how to play it. It was written and recorded by organist Art Neville, guitarist Leo Nocentelli, bassist George Porter Jr., and drummer Zigaboo Modaliste, known together as the Meters, sometimes also called the Funky Meters. It's a pretty accurate name. Now all music has roots in the music that came before it, but musical tradition is a little bit different in New Orleans. I'm a midwestern kid, I've only ever visited New Orleans a few times, I don't want to overstep my knowledge here, but I think it's safe to say that in New Orleans, musical tradition is a much richer, more explicit thing, and more players who perform traditional New Orleans styles are extremely conversant in the technical and stylistic particulars of their musical predecessors. You can hear that New Orleans feel in each of the four instruments being played on Sissy Strut, but it's particularly evident in the drums. Sissy Strut. Zigaboo Modeliste. day founding member of
2: the meters one of the purveyors of the new orleans sound, and zigaboo describes his kind of style as a as a collage of all the drummers
0: from new orleans that he's heard over the years i asked russ how zigaboo's drumming feels to him as a seasoned drummer zigaboo feels like the
2: like the evolution of street beat drumming if you put the funk into street beat into parade beats into second line beats and he takes that and sort of puts his own spin funk onto it but always underneath with with that feeling that grounding of new orleans
0: So this one is noticeably different from Cold Sweat, even though they were contemporaneous recordings. There's so much more looseness and swing. There's kind of this light, bouncing groove to the way the meters play, where James Brown's band was so regimented and disciplined and tight. Both extremely funky, just different flavors of funk. So let's get to the bottom of this flavor of funk, and we're gonna start again with the drums and a bit of a history lesson. Now New Orleans is famous for its parades, you probably know that, sometimes they're scheduled traditional celebrations like Mardi Gras, or there are the famed second line funeral marches that happen whenever someone dies, or sometimes they're just random pickup parades because someone felt like having a parade, or a band just started walking down the street and everyone else started walking with them. The particular swing of New Orleans music is deeply rooted in that parade music. A drummer might reference a parade beat, or a street beat, or a second-line beat, and what they're really talking about is some version of a New Orleans marching groove. Russ explained in a little bit more detail. In a
2: second-line parade beat, normally there would be a separate snare drummer, a separate bass drummer, so when you're attempting to convey that on the drum set... You're playing, you're trying to play your snare accents and your bass drum accents together.
0: That's an interesting challenge for a drum set player. Basically, if you're playing a parade beat on the drum set, you have to treat your kick drum and your snare drum like they're being played by slightly different sections in a marching band. Russ demonstrated that by playing a few different things, including this the groove from Dr. John's Shoe Fly Marches On, a classic use of the parade beat. get that fundamental groove into your ear first because that parade beat is pulsing under every other new orleans groove that we're going to talk about
1: boom, boom, boom,
0: boom, boom, boom. that's the fundamental sissy stride is another groove that's basically just kick drum snare drum and hi-hat, and Russ went through what Zigaboo Modeliste is playing on each of those instruments. Keep an ear out for that parade pulse as he demonstrates them, because you can really hear it in each individual part, and then you can really hear it when they're all together.
2: Here's the bass drum part from Sissy Shrud. The hi-hat part. Bass drum and hi-hat together.
0: Add in the snare drum and the whole thing coalesces. hear that parade beat in there right Modeliste has talked a lot about his influences, and one influence in particular stands out, a less widely known New Orleans drummer named Stanley Ratcliffe. Russ credited the drummer Stanton Moore, who plays with Galactic and is himself a New Orleans drummer with an encyclopedic knowledge of the history of that style of drumming as his source for this. The Ratcliffe beat is another drum groove that made its way through time up into Zigaboo's playing on Sissy Strut and a lot of other songs.
2: Zigaboo was talking about how he had seen a drummer named Stanley Radcliffe. Stanley Radcliffe was playing something that would influence Zigaboo in such a way that you can hear it in many of his beats, including Sissy Strut. So here is the Radcliffe beat. Two hands on the hi-hat. Adding sort of a mambo bass. And then just a solid two and four on the snare.
0: To help you all understand how that Radcliffe beat could evolve into Sissy Strut, Russ tried something a little bit more difficult. I'm going to attempt to play the Radcliffe beat
2: and then morph into Zigaboo's Sissy Strut beat. The idea being, once I have the flow of that first Radcliffe beat down, I'm using that same sort of feeling and that same sort of sticking to achieve what would later be the sissy strut beat so here is the radcliffe beat sissy strut radcliffe <laughs> nice. sissy strut
0: So I hope that gives you a sense of just how deep the Rivers of Influence run in New Orleans, and how while Zigaboo Modeliste's part on Sissy Strut has become the stuff of drumming legend, its origins go back a lot farther than 1969. Of course, Zig is only one part of the ensemble, and the other three players in the meters, Art Neville, Leo Nocentelli, and George Porter Jr., all played an equally important role in making this thing go. Let's start with George Porter's bass line. It's similar to what Leo is playing on guitar, though it has that cool little octave jump at the end of the phrase, ba a boom And again, I did my best here. Honestly, I think I did pretty okay, considering my bass chops. Add the drums and you're off and running. Now you might be noticing that similar to Cold Sweat, Sissy Strut is basically just a vamp on a single chord. It's in the key of C, though the riff at the end of each phrase goes through a couple of other chords. It goes to B flat, then to F, and then back to C, what's known as a double plagal cadence, it's something that's actually come up a surprising amount on strong songs lately. It's a blink and you miss it kind of thing, because it's almost just a riff, but it does have more than just the one chord. All the same, this is a pretty stripped down song harmonically, which means that the two chordal instruments, Leo Nocentelli's guitar and Art Neville's organ, are kind of more rhythmic, they're playing a more rhythmic role in the ensemble. Let's start with Art Neville, whose name you probably recognize from another band of his, the Neville Brothers. which he formed with his brothers charles cyril and aaron neville the last of which is probably the best known of the neville brothers art is playing organ and he's really playing a rhythmic role here he's matching up with zigaboo's snare drum really the kick and the snare and then he's hopping over and doubling the phrase on that double plagal chord riff at the end with the guitar Listen to just the organ along with the drums, and pay attention to how the snare drum and the organ really line up on the first part of each phrase. Let's just add the bass to that. All that's left is Leo Nocentelli's guitar, the most immediately distinctive sound on this recording. (music) This is another guitar part that's not that hard to learn, but it's extremely difficult to master it, particularly if you want to get it to sound like him. Every guitarist learns this riff, I'll see people playing it, like I'll just be watching a youtube video about something else, and the guitar player will start playing it, and They'll play it, but they just haven't really tried to get it to sound like Leo. And that was a lot of the fun and a lot of the challenge for me in recreating this. I actually went down a whole rabbit hole in trying to figure out the exact setup he was using and I still have never quite managed to cop his sound, like it looks like he likes to play on the neck pickup of his 335, but I can't get my neck pickup to sound like him. Anyways, it was kind of fun to get a little bit obsessed over trying to get it to sound like him. It was a good reminder for me at least to not learn riffs off of YouTube guitarist top 25 videos where they just have tablature and they play the riff. Go back to the source material and really learn what the player played. He plays this riff in such a particular way, with such a particular tone and attack, it all comes down to that first note which he kinda spanks in this certain way, and it's the spark that sets off the whole song. You hear what I mean? He doesn't just pluck the string there and he doesn't just hit it with his pick, he smacks it so I spent a while trying to cop this sound. The best that I could come up with was doing a sort of finger pull on the note with the fleshy part of my index finger on one side of the string and the pick on the other. People say that your tone is in your fingers and here that's particularly true. A billion guitarists have played this riff in the decades since Leo first recorded it, but no one has ever made it sound that specific, particular, beautiful way that he made it sound. So let's listen back to my little recreation and just try to drink in how those four parts fit together It's not a super complicated tune, so it's actually possible to notice each of the parts at the same time without breaking your brain too much. So listen to Russ's recreation of Zigaboo Modeliste's drum groove, that hybridization of a New Orleans parade beat, the Stanley Ratliff beat, and whatever other grooves were bouncing around together in Zig's head. Notice George Porter Jr.'s bass line, how he matches up with the guitar in the first part of the phrase, then plays something different at the end of the phrase. Catch Art Neville's organ playing, how he starts out synced up with the drums, then switches to match the guitar in the second half, when they do that double plagal chord turnaround. And notice the guitar riff on top, as I do my best to cop that particular, dynamic way that Leo Nocentelli spanked his guitar strings. This was a fun one to recreate, ears on, here we go. such a distinct specific groove and that's because it's not just a recording it's not just four musicians in a studio together playing a series of coordinated riffs like so much of the meter's music sissy strut is made of the sounds rhythms and feelings of new orleans and when you listen to it even if you don't realize it you're listening to the history of one of the greatest funkiest cities in the world We're approaching the end of Strong Grooves, Volume 1, but before we clear out the tour bus and vacuum off the seats, we've got one last stop to make. We've been seeing the sights in 1969, it's been pretty nice, but let's cross the border between the 60s and the 70s, let's head right for 1972, and let's see what Aretha Franklin is up to. Rocksteady was written by the great Aretha Franklin and released on her 1972 album Young, Gifted, and Black. It features a who's who of killer soul musicians of the era, Donnie Hathaway is on keys, Cornell Dupree is playing guitar. Dr. John is playing percussion, which is kind of wild. The great Chuck Rainey is playing bass, and Bernard Purdy, of course, is playing the drums. That's a killer duo bassist and drummer, and as it happens, Rainey and Purdy featured together on a previous Strong Songs episode, Steely Dan's Babylon Sisters, which they recorded together on almost a decade later. I focused quite a bit on Bernard Purdy on my episode about that song, talking about his signature Purdy shuffle in particular, that's the groove that drives that song, but I knew that I'd have Russ on hand for this episode to give me a more knowledgeable insight into Purdy's playing, so I decided to include Rocksteady in this episode just to get his take. Bernard Purdy and Rocksteady, another one of those grooves,
2: often imitated, never duplicated. (laughs) People trying to figure out how, not just to play it, but to to sort of get that vibe, to get that feeling their whole lives. And us mortals can only hope to get close.
0: Bernard Purdy had some fast hands, and he's a master of ghost notes, both on the snare drum as well as on the hi-hat. Ghost notes are just an essential part of the specificity of a given Bernard Purdy groove. He had really impressive technique, and that allowed him to operate with this level of subtlety that makes each of his drum parts a very rich and complex thing. Rocksteady was no different. Russ set about putting the groove together element by element.
2: So let's start with the hi-hat. Instead of a straight... That you'd hear in most beats. He's adding a little bit of a... And now adding the hi-hat. Which already establishes kind of a unique sizzle, as the strong songers (laughs) would say. Yes. So I'll put that hi-hat part now with a very funky bass part going along boom boom pum 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 and now we'll add the snare and some of the ghosted notes as well to get the whole puzzle
0: One more kind of granular thing that Russ pointed out that I thought was really cool, he illustrated the crucial role that Purdy's left foot played in each of his drum parts.
2: With many of his grooves, rock steady for sure, and often during the Purdy shuffle, Bernard would be pulsing his left foot. I'm just using my foot. But then if I play... you automatically get some different sounds and textures just by playing what you would normally play and just keeping your hi-hat pulsing time. It does that in the Purdy Shuffle too. So if the Purdy Shuffle kind of this thing without your foot. And then with your foot. He was a master of using that hi-hat
0: And exploiting it to the fullest To get down with his funky self So just one more small subtle drum technique Pulsing your left foot to open the hi-hat up And you can hear when you listen to Bernard Purdy playing You can hear that hi-hat opening up at regular intervals And it kind of propels the groove in a way That it wouldn't if it weren't there Hear it? So that's how the drum part works. Let's take a quick look at a few of those other parts since this band really cooks, and the magic, of course, is the way that all those instruments come together. So, for starters, there's Chuck Rainey's bass line. This is a relentless bass line. I had to really push myself to be able to keep up with it. It doesn't sound like this song is all that fast tempo wise, but it feels fast if you're a sort of okay bassist and you're trying to keep up with it. Let's add Russ's drums in and listen to how the two parts fit together. This one moves. This groove really pushes forward in a way that neither Cold Sweat nor Sissy Strut did. This song has somewhere to be. So the other part that I put some work into recreating is over there on the left. That's Cornell Dupree's guitar part. Cornel Dupree was one funky man, and this is just a classic kind of funk guitar part. We're in the key of A here, and there's this shape that you'll learn if you start learning any funk guitar playing, where when you're doing a vamp on a single chord like this, here we're in A, so you kind of just sit right on the fifth fret, which is the A fret, and you put your thumb over the sixth string, and you can kind of just bounce around the A minor pentatonic and play all sorts of famous funk guitar parts. This is a very Jimi Hendrix kind of a shape. This is a very Cornel Dupree kind of a shape. Lots of funk players use this shape and the rock steady part just totally hangs out right there. Then it occasionally hops up to the 12th fret from time to time for that little flourish that he pops in. It's a relentless part. It's very fun to play. And like a lot of these parts, it's more challenging than you'd think. Just because it kind of repeats itself a lot doesn't mean you can let up for one second. If you're going to play this, you got to mean it. So that's bass, guitar, and drums, and those are the three instruments that really hold down the groove on this tune. But there is one other essential instrument in this groove, and I'd be remiss if I didn't mention it, and that's the cowbell. There's a pronounced cowbell on this track. It goes through pretty much the entire track. It's over on the right, along with some other percussion that's in there too. There's this big, funny guiro at the start of every phrase. But the cowbell is kind of the rug for this song. It really ties the room together. So I had to pitch shift my cowbell because my cowbell is a lot lower than the one on the recording, but the pitch does help it come out against the drums. And as funky as Bernard's drum playing is, the cowbell does give the whole thing just a little bit of extra sparkle. So you know the drill by now, let's put each of those pieces together. Russ's funky recreation of Bernard Purdy's original drum part pushing forward with those relentless ghost notes and hi-hat pulses, then me doing my best to match Chuck Rainey's relentless bass part, Cornell Dupree's super grooving guitar part, and then over on the right, that cowbell bouncing along on top of the rhythm. Here we go. What a killer groove. And I do want to say that while this episode is focused on funk rhythm sections and how they worked together, Rocksteady wouldn't be what it is without the woman who wrote it, Aretha Franklin. And if you're hearing her sing and you're thinking, man, I wish Kirk would talk more about Aretha Franklin. She's the reason for this whole song. Well, I agree with you. You're not wrong. But I did do a whole episode on Aretha's song, Think, back in year one. There's always more to say about Aretha, though. This record, Young, Gifted, and Black, is such a killer record. Aretha sounds incredible on it, and it really shows off her strengths as a band leader. She really knew how to put together a band that could get it done. And she clearly knew what I was reminded of in the process of making this episode. It pays to know a good drummer. That'll do it for Strong Grooves Volume 1. A huge thank you to Russ Kleiner for lending his time, expertise, and killer drumming to the show. He really did lend his time to the show in more ways than one. An additional thank you to Nick Erico, another great drummer who engineered and oversaw the drum recording session. Both Russ and Nick live and play in Connecticut, we recorded this across the country with the magic of the internet, so if you live in that area and you go see any live music, you just might see one of them on stage. I hope that you all liked this episode. I learned a ton while making it. It was so much fun to work on it and to work with one of my oldest friends and to get just a tiny bit of his vast drumming knowledge onto this show. This kind of thing does take a lot of work, a lot of scheduling, coordination, a lot of extra editing for this kind of thing, and I can only put that kind of time into the show because all of you support me making it on Patreon. So thanks to everyone who is a patron of the show, or who's otherwise supported Strong Songs recently, if you'd like to chip in and help me keep doing this, you can find Patreon and PayPal links down in the show notes. And if you're a quarter note patron or higher, you'll find that bonus mini-sode about James Brown drumming in the bonus feed right now. Also down in the show notes, all kinds of links. I've been taking regular guitar lessons, as I've mentioned on the show, and I've been posting some fun guitar videos to Instagram just to give myself a reason to really practice something to where I'd be comfortable posting it. There's also links to my newsletter, the Strong Songs merch store, the discord, links to all the stuff that I talked about in this episode, all down in the show notes. This episode's outro soloist is Oakland-based saxophonist Charles McNeil, a funky player if ever there was one. So stick around for Charles and I'll see you in two weeks with more strong songs.